and welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. Today, I'm here with Drew Owens. Drew's based out of Sacramento and is a totally rad dude. We had a great, great talk and also discovered that we have really similar taste in music. And I think he had some really insightful and interesting things to say that we've never heard on this podcast. You may know Drew uh, from working with bands like From Indian Lakes, Hearts Like Lions, A Lot Like Birds, Consider the Thief, which was his own band, and a whole ton more. Uh, Drew is a rad guy, and I think we really touched on some great stuff in this one, so check it out. Hey, one second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service, and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what's your chain for recording your voice today? I'm using a Flea 47 nice. uh, through a Chandler TG2 into a Prism Sound Titan. And uh, if I were singing to you, I'd, I'd be compressing too, but that seems excessive because I'm not a dynamic speaker. Yes, yes, I, I am right there with you on that one. Um, that, uh, that is a good chain though. I, I love the TG2. What's your background in music? My family's pretty musical. My dad has always been into jazz. He's a sax player. Mm-hmm. Played some other instruments too. My mom always loved music. Um, so I grew up with a lot of uh, kind of pop and rock. The Beatles, particularly Paul McCartney, Michael Jackson, all, all kinds of stuff. I picked up piano around nine. I didn't totally fall in love with music then, although I used some of my music theory to, to try to transcribe like soundtracks of things I liked, like games, like the Zelda soundtrack. Nice. Um, so I was like always trying to figure that stuff out. I guess music really began for me when I discovered punk rock. And I use the term loosely. <laughs> yeah. So it, so, yeah, so yeah, it wasn't really crashing conflict. <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't like I, I didn't jump right into Sex Pistols or, mm. or Ramones or anything like that. Uh, it was, uh, you know, kind of stuff like No Effects and Lagwagon. And that, that really got me into music and made it kind of accessible to me, like a lot of people, I think. Probably around 13 or 14, I picked up uh, the electric guitar. Just kind of tried to start various bands. I was even in an Irish punk band for a while, which is wow. ridiculous because that's I'm pretty weird because I'm Indian. <laughs> that's so that, that yeah, so it totally didn't work. Uh, <laughs> but but it was fun. And uh, then yeah, just the band thing got more serious. I uh, was part of a band called Consider the Thief for a while, and and some people actually still know me from that. Yeah, that's that's music for me. I did vocals and and keys and guitar in that band uh, not as much guitar later on cool and so how did the producing thing come about then from that i really enjoyed being in the studio like making recordings with the band was always a lot of fun i started demoing our stuff at some point tried to tried to um explore with that a little bit like um you know just not settling for a really crappy demo at some point and trying to see if i could actually you know make the kick drum sound like it does in a record or you know get a get a cool guitar sound and we would always demo the vocals separately from the music we just cut the music live and then the the vocals after which i think a lot of people do and yeah i just really enjoyed it and um our guitarist when we had demoed the the music for um the full length that we put out said hey man this is uh this doesn't sound bad you you could probably you could probably record people if you wanted to and i was like yeah I don't know. Then he just he just found me a, a like a kind of a medley band and and that was my first 
the first time I got paid to record somebody. And uh, it, just from there, I just kept going. And yeah, I love it. Awesome. And so I assume you have your own studio? Yeah, it's uh, like a sort of a warehouse that I've sort of repurposed and retrofitted to, to be a recording studio. Nice. So tell me about something that makes your studio unique. Well, the fact that it's a it's a warehouse that I've repurposed it um, to to a recording studio, I guess you could say that gives it sort of industrial vibe. Yeah, it's mine, so that's that's cool. Don't have to watch the clock and then you know jam out a final drum take and I'll edit it later, kind of thing. You know, that is important. Tell me about one of the coolest pieces of gear your studio has. My favorite pieces are probably a few of the instruments that I have. I have a um, a 1965 Guild f30 acoustic guitar and um, that's amazing yeah i don't get to use it for every session but every time it it comes out it's just like magical and i actually inherited it from my my grandfather who was uh he was like a country finger picking kind of player Mm. and uh so the guitar just has a a ton of history and mojo and um the 1973 uh fender telly yeah those are probably my my two favorite and that that telly finds its way on most most records I'm a part of because people just love the way that thing sounds. Nice. So is guitar your only instrument or do you play anything else? No, I, um, I'm i a vocalist and uh, I play keys and, and do like programming, electronics, that kind of thing. Nice. So we have this thing that we say in the podcast. On one side, you have like Steve Albini who doesn't really get involved in, you know, the songs. Just maybe I'll tell you how your take's good. And then you have like a John Feldman who will totally rewrite your song when you come into the studio. Where do you see yourself on that spectrum? It varies. It, it really kind of ranges with the artist. To begin with, I would say if I if I work with an artist, it's usually because I've, I've heard some existing songs or demos and um, and I like those to begin with. And I think that I have something to bring to the table as well. But, you know, sometimes that that entails modifying song structures, um, adding, removing, changing parts of the song. That That's cool. That challenges me as a songwriter. And it's it's an exciting environment and just feels like anything is, you know, possible. Any The song can take any direction. So I, I really enjoy um, getting involved with the songwriter, or, you know, on the song level. You know, other records are, um, the, the challenge is really just representing what, what the band or the artist has already worked hard to arrange and um, just representing it in the most impactful way that we can all think of and going through, you know, all kinds of crazy tonal possibilities, just as happy in either situation. It, it totally just depends on the artist. Nice. I like, I like that impactful. I thought that's a good adjective for it. So tell me, what do you think in most cases you bring to records most often? I think the the best thing I can bring to a record is really my my own perspective <laughs> that might sound a you know a little, a little uh, that, cocky no but, but that, that, that that's an important thing for producers it's a, it, it, while it sounds cocky that is important yeah you know my, my perspective on the song arrangements and ideas to to kind of enhance the existing sounds that are there and also add textures that might not have been there before you know bringing a plan to the table as to how Every part of the song and every instrument of the song is going to get represented. Yeah, that's, I think that's what I bring. Cool. So what's a common mistake you see bands doing before coming to the studio? A, a mistake that people make is is just not being realistic about their skill level sometimes and the rehearsal needed to really nail the performances. Uh, that's that's a big one because I, I, I'm a real stickler for getting a, a compelling performance. You know, that's what really draws me into a song. You know, all other factors being being there like the song being good yeah yeah, yeah. I'm... sometimes an artist won't have a totally clear vision for the song that's kind of tough because i i develop a vision a sense of propriety for for artist songs all the time it's part of what i do but um but it kind of needs to be a partnership you know it can't be me just writing my vision all the way to completion um so I really encourage the the artist to have a, a strong vision for the song to have their song as as fleshed out as they can, you know, before coming into the studio. That's a that's a big one, and I I try to get involved. Up, you hear my dog over there? Yes. Uh, yeah, the studio dog uh, Hans. Oh, very nice. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, what was I saying? Well, you're talking about that the band should have their vision, more of a vision, which I do think is like one of those things that bands I think really 
underestimate these days is that like if you don't have a lot of vision it's like the producer only has so much time to give you some vision and premeditation on music i mean i hate to be that old man with the cane in the air i do think that that's something that is on the decline and it really sucks because it should be on the incline with all these tools that are available to us today yeah totally yeah that's also why i tried to to have a good pre-production process even if it's not here in the studio where we're going through you know the songs together in person which is ideal and i try to plan time for that but even you know before the band gets here just bouncing demos back and forth um is a great way to prepare and to to make sure that the songs are fleshed out and ready to go you know before before we record a note definitely is crucial how about a smart thing bands do while they're in the studio doing those things having demo uh demoed the the songs adequately and and making sure that that every member um you know if it's a if it's a band is uh is totally able to play the songs, you know, backwards and forwards. You know, this also ties in with a mistake. And, you know, on the flip side, a smart thing that bands can do is, um, you know, not having to do so much with the music, but sometimes, you know, the band doesn't really have a plan for what they're going to do after the record is is ready to go. And this this applies more to indie bands. Yes. Um, you know, even some even some bands that are on labels, that they, they don't really have a strategy for when the record is, is going to be done and you know what's what's going to come after so when i when i see bands kind of kind of planning that while we're in the studio i think that's a super smart thing to do and that's how you ensure that you're going to keep making music yes uh, you know um when i used to work for alan douches he used to say a thing i always say like the reason i wrote my book on the music business was like the saying that he had was he would go he'd hand a band a master and he'd go now's the hard part alan said that you, you know it's funny i i actually um alan mastered the latest for minion links record oh nice um, that i was a part of so yeah and i got to talk on the phone with him he's a he's a really cool guy i yeah, really enjoyed talking to him the smartest human being i've ever met I oh yeah say. super smart great guy yeah, and, and super generous with his time. I mean, man, we, yes. we talked for a long time. Yeah, he's he is very good like that. Tell me what happens when you and a band disagree about something. Yeah, okay. So when we uh, when we disagree about something, it doesn't happen a lot. When it does, I, I think the important thing is to try to go for a compromise. You know, oftentimes there's a middle ground that everyone can be satisfied with. Usually, you know, when you disagree about something, it's a, it's a part. Sometimes a band will will play a part or there'll be a vocal melody or you know a lead guitar or something something about it really bothers me <laughs> if, you know if it's if the disagreement is on my end I, I think the worst thing you can do is to put your foot down and say that's not working you know no way we're not going to go there and i think that you can often capture the spirit of that kind of contentious idea in a way that does please everyone and you know if, if it happens a lot if we're constantly butting heads on something i think everybody kind of needs to reevaluate and just making sure that we're working towards the same vision i have to say i think that that was, was one of the, the more eloquent answers we've gotten to that question i've asked every every single guest so well done thanks <laughs> um, yeah i think there's always a there's always another way like I'm, i can think of a couple situations where there was a vocal melody that sort of triggered the you know like oh crap like i think a lot of people aren't gonna like that and you know because i i don't like it and i'm assuming there are some people out there like me maybe there are well, I, yeah. I, you know dave sardi <laughs> had this great quote in tape up years ago he always said he's like i'm basically your first reaction of an educated ear hearing your music so here's what the biggest discriminating asshole who might hear your record is gonna think maybe you want to consider that yeah yeah, like like I said, I think there's oftentimes more than one way to get the same underlying maybe emotion that the performer is trying to convey, that the writer is trying to convey, just kind of repackaged in maybe a way that can, you know, reach more people. I, I think that's a great way to put it. So you touched on vocals. So one of the things I've been, been asking is, uh, what's a, I think vocals are, you know, without a doubt, the thing that ruins most records. What's a smart or a big mistake, something that you could give a tip on about vocals to singers out there? or bands out there trying to get their vocals to be better on a record. This is a big one. One mistake that I see people make, it, this isn't always a mistake. I think it can be. I see a lot of artists save the writing of the vocals for the very last thing that they mm. do on the record. Like the music is all written and, and it's just like, all right, just, you know, slap some vocals over this. And sometimes that does work. Uh, I've 
see some bands where the vocalist can can really work with that and that's great for the way that i write vocals it kind of happens at the same time as the music um it kind of all comes together and if a vocalist is singing during the songwriting then i think the musicians intuitively will sort of pull back enough to really let the vocals shine if the music is written without the vocalist involved sometimes everybody will kind of step up in a way that can crowd out the vocalist so it everything is kind of struggling to be heard when when the vocals finally do join up with the music so yeah not not considering the vocals early enough in the songwriting process i think is um is a big one are we are we talking about the writing or the actual recording i'm more just looking for a tip so that people can be can get something out of this yeah considering the vocals i think as early as possible and, and really working at melodies a big mistake that i think vocalists make is and this might sound a little backwards is um compromising the strength of the vocal melody and the hook for fitting enough for fitting their lyrics in and this is a mistake that i i feel like i made um as a vocalist too where you have kind of a basic melody but you kind of have to rework it for the sake of getting a certain lyrical phrase in there and that compromise always has to take place to some degree but i've definitely heard it where singers are kind of trying to you know phrase a vocal melody in a way that's awkward for the sake of of getting the right lyrical idea in there and you know lyric the right lyrical idea is important but first and foremost you know if if the melody and if if the words of the song don't sound beautiful and don't feel right then i don't think listeners are really going to engage with the lyrics in the same way uh, i think th- think that's very very uh good advice so we uh have a bunch of rapid fire we try to do like four sentences or less on how you feel about some modern production tools do amp simulators have a role in your productions not really uh, not a ton you know i use a i think the closest i get to really depending on an amp simulator is is using a sans amp on one of my bass channels mm. for bass guitar that's probably about as far as it goes sometimes i'll use an amp simulator on vocals you know for certain lo-fi or really kind of aggressive vocal sounds and that can be cool. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, running the vocals to a real amp is cool too. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, some guys use amp simulators all the time, like for guitars as the main sound, and, and they, they can make it sound great. I, I haven't been able to make that work. So, you know, amp simulators are, are kind of relegated to scratch tracks and um, special effects kind of tools. Uh, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. Plenty of rec- records I know that do it, but I it doesn't work for me personally. And I think that's an important thing to realize as a producer is that not every tip's going to be uh, something oh, yeah. you, can, you can utilize. Oh, yeah. Early on, you know, I would, I would get tips from guys that were older and more experienced than me. And, you know, you find out quickly that what works for the next guy is may not work for you and yep. <laughs> sometimes you shouldn't waste your trying your time trying to make it work and you know my background is an electric guitarist i i don't know you know maybe there's something about a real amp that just feels different yeah I, it definitely plays it definitely feels different to play to every tone but that's the thing is like that is every single amp you're going to play different too so tell me about sampled drums for your productions sample drums have a role and uh that's one that really varies with the style you know, obviously, if you're programming electronic drums, then absolutely, you know, backing up, like if you have a drum machine, backing up those sounds with with other sounds to to get a compelling sound is, I, I think that's crucial. Layering kicks and stuff like that for electronic music. And if it's, uh, if we're talking about acoustic drums that require a natural sound, I'll, I'll either skip it if I can get away with it, if the song can kind of, the, you know, the drums can lay back a little bit, then it, Sometimes there's there's no point if you have a great performance and the drummer's hitting consistently. Or, you know, if the song, the need for, for having a natural sound but kind of some extra power, then I'll, I'll back the drums up with uh, samples of the drummer playing the kit that we recorded. If I think I'll need it, then usually there'll be some time afterwards where we, we sample that kit and, uh, you know, if needed, I can back up the sounds with recordings of that kit. You know, samples are also good if you, if you need in absolutely you know beyond realistic larger than life drum sound and sometimes mm. it's it's uh better to to use sample drums nice uh how about pitch correction yeah pitch correction to to tighten up a performance that that has soul but with a few maybe distracting moments of pitchiness 
I think that's really the point. Not not as something to, you know, rely on all the time to, you know, tighten up every little thing. But, you know, that's another thing that can vary with the style too. You know, if you if you have to do a radio hit, I mean, the stuff you hear on the radio nowadays, just, I mean, laser tight tuning. Yeah. And um, it's just not really natural. So, you know, sometimes that's that's the sound or, you know, doing the T-Pain thing if you... <laughs> if you're into that let's hope not um <laughs> do, do you master your own records i'm comfortable mastering my own stuff but i also in, invite the the collaboration of a mastering engineer and oftentimes you know if i'm part of a like a full-length record in particular um i'll really encourage the artists like hey we should we should definitely look at a mastering engineer together that outside perspective you know not to mention that's the really i i would say the historical way of, of doing a record, I mean, you have somebody else master it. And that, that fresh perspective, that extra set of ears, um, I mean, that's invaluable. So I, I like having a mastering engineer. And sometimes I am the mastering engineer for a project. And that's cool, too. Nice. How long does it take you to track a song? And how long does it take you to mix one, ideally? Again, yeah, oh, yeah, I remember what I was saying. Yeah, I tell you this all the time. Uh, mm. <laughs> it varies with the style. And it, and it does. But I would say, um, and it does take longer if if we're talking about a single or an ep you can you know when you go to the trouble of getting rock drum set up for instance or you know i use the term rock loosely being able to use the kit for more than one song mm-hmm. or more than two songs is often a, a time saver in the grand scheme of things it, you know when i do a, a single that that needs rock drums in particular set up then you know i i go through great pains to get the drums sounding the way that they do to, you know, get that set up and have it only be used for one song is obviously not the most time efficient thing. Yes. I would say average um, tracking time is usually two to three days for me to feel really comfortable. Mm. And like everybody, you know, is really giving the best performance and also, you know, having that time in the beginning to, to make sure that, you know, we're going through the song together and making sure that the parts we're going to lay down are good. Yeah. So yeah, usually, uh, and then mixing on say usually about a day, eight to 10 hours, um, barring unforeseen circumstances, um, (laughs) with mixing, I will go through several mixes of a song sometimes, you know, if I reach the end of the mix and it's still not speaking to me or if something's still bothering me, then, you know, zero out the faders and let's, (laughs) let's try again. (laughs) As a matter of fact, you sometimes got to do it. Yeah, man. I, I had a song actually recently where, and this is a lot for me. It may not be for some people, but um, but I, I think the sixth mix was the one. So yeah, that's usually a song doesn't take me six mixes. Usually it's you know the first time or the second time. But yeah, I mean, is, is it that 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 is just uh, was part of the game sometimes? And oh um, yeah, I, you, you know, uh, I guess I'm on like year uh, seventeen of Pro Tools mixes, and I'm like maybe maybe at some point I won't have to throw all the faders down and punch a wall. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's funny. Sometimes when I reach the end of a mix and um, it's like, I feel like, man, is this ever going to to just be easy to do? Yeah. <laughs> Am I ever just going to, you know, just, you know, totally just know exactly where to go the whole time? And, you know, I do have a vision for the mix when I start it. You know, you got you to gotta know where you're taking it. But at the same time, I think, you know, part of the job is just knowing that, no, it's never going to be easy. Um, and uh, you you enjoy that. <laughs> you you embrace the challenge. Nice. Yeah, no, I, I think that is a thing. I would, uh, you know, I imagine it does get easy because when I see some of these old pros do it, it does seem like they're um, sleepwalking through it and they have a command of it, but I'm definitely still not there. Yeah, yeah. That And, you know, I, I try to change up what I'm doing between mixes. I, I think it can be a dangerous thing when you, or at least for me, it can be a dangerous thing that when I, think i'm getting too comfortable with something and like oh yeah you know this is this is what i do to guitars or this is always what i do to the vocal and and that can be sometimes how you end up with records that kind of sound the same between artists so i think changing it up and to a degree you know having sort of a sense of wondering man you know what am i going to throw out at this time with the mix is is important and it, it creates more of a varied body of work. It, that, that, that is a great point is that it creates a very, cause you don't want to keep that. And then the other, the other thing I'll say that is like, I just read this book, um, the geography of genius. And he talks about that every great creative movement that has ever existed from on down to like Athens and 
centuries ago, they all fall when they all get comfortable and stagnant. And that's the death. Yeah, like there you he go. says it like, uh, they all are created a different way and every origin of story is different, but every decline story is exactly the same. Mm. They believe their own hype. They get arrogant and comfortable. So yeah. Yeah. What do they say? Pride always comes before the fall. Oh, that's really good. That is really good. Yeah, that's true. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me a good lesson you've learned from another producer. A lot of times, you know, it'll be exchanging tricks of the trade. And those are always cool. Those are things that, you know, will work out for you sometimes in a really meaningful way. And sometimes they won't, you know, maybe some deeper lessons that I've learned from other producers, you know, actually, and I think, you know, Casey Bates. I do. Um, I do. Great. Yeah. Great I actually got to hang out with him um, for, for a little bit. And uh, we were talking a little bit about some work-life balance and uh, he had some really interesting things to say about that. You know, it's not popular to talk about in, in this, and you don't have to use this if you don't. No, that's, that's <laughs> it makes cool, me sound good. Because because I, I will say that that in recording, in the world of recording, workaholism is greatly glorified. Yes, 100%. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. Like, I was on Instagram, totally just lurking, and um, I saw another producer on here. On, on on instagram and uh they had said something to the effect like like oh you know not a single day off in mm-hmm. um in the year of 2016 which you know if I, I guess i could work for some people and i just thought man that's uh i don't know if that's a that's a good thing like you know i i need you know to, to hang out with my wife sometimes mm. and and being outside of the studio sometimes inspires what goes on inside the studio for mm-hmm. me um, you know, taking a break, get getting out, you know, having an evening off and I, you know, or a, a day off to, to listen to music or, or to write something or I don't know, just look around and maybe just enjoy being outside the studio that, that enables me to come back and, um, with new ideas. I, I think you're, so. you're a hundred percent right. And this is that way for any creator is like, you can, you know, just, just like anything else, there is a too much, like there is writing too many songs. Like there's all, there, mm-hmm. it's so popular to say these days, like go hard, do your grind all the time. Like, you know, write a thousand songs this year. It's like, if you write a thousand songs, you won't know which ones are good. Cause you're going to be so used to this low bar you've set for yourself. And if you work every day, Every single day, you're not going to be able to have any way to go back and look. Like, I think reflection is something that no one's discussing these days, and you need time to reflect. Like, if you're just working a 10, 12 hour day every day, you can't reflect. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, I can remember one mistake that I that I made. You know, I don't even remember the question. Another lesson from another producer, but yeah, I mean, we're, oh it, yeah, it, yeah, it's fine. It's fine to go on a tangent. Yeah, no, but but you know, speaking of the work life balance, and, and this, I mean, this applies to musicians as much as it does producers. I, I made the mistake once of, um, you know, had the opportunity to work in a beautiful studio once, actually, Sonic Ranch in. El Paso. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Have you I, been I've there? Seen, I've just I seen mean, uh, seen uh, pictures of it, but I totally remember. Yeah, it's a great studio. Yeah, I mean, it's totally like working. You, you go there, and it's like working on you know a big budget record in in the '90s or something like that. It's like you know people are making you food, and and you have like runners and stuff like that. It's crazy. If you can't tell, I, I don't have runners yes, yeah, 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 yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yet <laughs> that, that, that but, is a luxury um, these days. It, yeah, absolutely. But I, I made the mistake of you know being there and, and having you know all kinds of beautiful stuff to work with, you know, like, uh, you know, we're doing 14, 16 hour days. And, um, you know, by the time it came to vocals, I think the vocalist was just so run into the ground that like, you know, getting a good performance, uh, became a struggle. So, you know, every session after that, you know, I'm always considering like, okay, you know, we got to get the balance right with this. Yeah. And I think it was one of the things too, like I, I was discussing this with somebody the other day. It was like that, most things in life are like lifting weight. Like, you know, a drummer who's never played for 10 hours a day does like, you know, they don't do a very good job of sustaining that throughout the day if they haven't done that on a regular basis. And it's the same thing for even learning how to work long hours. And a lot of musicians have never had to sit in the studio for 60 hours and it exhausts them. Their ego depletes, everything depletes out of them. And that's not where you want them for a record. So this glorified, yeah, we stayed up all night and worked, you know, two hours of sleep. It, 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 it doesn't work. No, yeah, it's, you know, it's not a, it's not a sprint. You got to pace yourself. Yeah. I mean, like you said, with drummers, I mean, you know, people don't have that kind of endurance over, over 10, 14, 16 hours of drums. You know, you want the last song to have just as much excitement and power as the first one. 
right? So, you know, you got you to gotta pace people. And I, I think this is especially true with vocalists. I mean, if you save vocals for the end of a record, I mean, and the vocalist is just going at it for long days, uh, that's not going to work out. So uh, that's why when I, when I do vocals, I, I split days, um, you know, always, you know, I, I don't think I ever go over, you know, unless the vocalist insists on it. And that, that does happen sometimes where you have a vocalist that really does want to go for it all day, you know, keeping it to three to four hours for a vocal session is good. Tell me one of the best, best moments you've had in the studio. This is a tough one to single out to, you know, highlights the best moments, but I would say that usually when you're on the songwriting front just you'll reach a point where you have a breakthrough sometimes maybe there's a problematic song or part and when you have a breakthrough in in the song or the writing uh, that's super rewarding when something just clicks and the song comes together that's that's a really big one and anytime that happens I, i think with any artist those are i mean that excitement i mean is just palpable and it everybody shares in that sometimes uh well you want to reach this point with every song <laughs> there, there can be a moment when you're tracking a song and when the song is coming together it kind of dawns on you like holy crap this is really good <laughs> this is a really good song and this sounds great and that uh, i can't think of any other you know feeling that that will that will really sustain me through through the session and having a song, having the songs reach that point where you you can kind of look back at it and look on it um, and listen and think, wow, that's that's this is coming out really good. And um, and best moment, I don't know if this is in the studio necessarily, but when you send mixes off or a master off and it it gets just an overwhelmingly positive reaction and people are just stoked, I'm, that is probably the best feeling that I can think of because you, the work is done at, at that point. And now it's a matter of, you know, what is the band going to do with it? And um, th- that's a great feeling. That's a, uh, I like that. What's one of the worst moments you've had and what did you learn from it? It's like there, there's a family of best moments and a family of worst moments. And uh, so I think I, just, I, I gave you the best ones and the, the type of worst moments that I can think of. And you might, you might not think this is bad. Not everybody thinks this is bad, but Getting to the end of a mix is hard for me. I think I don't I don't know who gets credit for saying this. I think Da Vinci said that art is never finished, only abandoned. Mm-hmm. And George Lucas said something like movies are never finished, only abandoned. Mm-hmm. And people have uh, their own sort of adaptation of that phrase. And uh, I feel like a mix is never finished; it's only abandoned. I get to this point where I can look back and I'm pleased with how far the song has come. And I think it's killer, but there's always that kind of lurking suspicion that, you know, maybe, maybe that bass could be just a little bolder. Maybe I can push this just a little further and uh, getting to the point where you realize this song is, is in its best form right now. That kind of conflict that happens in me when I'm, when I'm towards the ending of a mix is that actually is very stress inducing for me. I'm like, Oh really? I can't, I can't take it further. I shouldn't take it further because sometimes when you do and you do start trying to tweak to death, it's like Jenga, right? I don't know if you've played Jenga, but you start, you start taking blocks out and stacking them and you've got something that isn't so stable all of a sudden. And then there's this one point where you maybe move something you know, a DB or half a DB and the whole thing just topples and it's like, ah, this sounds like crap. And then you have to start again. Or, you know, maybe you were responsible and, and if you're, you know, if you're working in the DAW, you can, you, you saved as, but then you go back to it and you think, ah, I could still do better. And you're back in the same place. <laughs> so dealing with the end, the, the inner conflict at the end of a mix is like, I, I joke, I call my wife and she has to, you know, deal with this with me <laughs> and just say, like, man, every time I finish a mix is the worst day. <laughs> Why? You don't like it? No, it's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the cre- creative insanity. <laughs> yeah. So let's get into some of your personal taste in music. What's a perfect record someone else has made and what about it makes it perfect? A perfect record. Mm, what is perfect? <laughs> yeah. Um, that's tough. And you know, I think as 
as I get older and my ears change and people's ears always change, that that answer changes because usually even in my favorite records, I'm, I could find something like uh, mm, the master distorted here mm. Mm, or, uh, you know, just certain certain choices I'll, I'll pick out and think like, oh, that's cool, but maybe I would have done that differently. And, I, <laughs> and, I, and, and that doesn't make it necessarily imperfect. And sometimes imperfections in a production are what make it for me. So that that is tough. What is a perfect record? And I, I would answer that by saying any work that can truly move me on an emotional level is perfect. It, that, that's really the point for me. When I consume music or art, I want to be invited into somebody else's life and experiences and see and feel about something the way that they do and when music can do that i it's a success i mean it's it's perfect when i walk away from a song and and feel like i've been left with something on an emotional level i mean music is i mean the language of, of pathos it's um so you know that's that's what i try to do and when i'm mixing and um and going for a performance i sometimes Oftentimes I'll try to close my eyes and, you know, maybe it's not perfect. Maybe it's, uh, you know, if we're talking about empirically perfect, but does it have something that's emotionally compelling? And if it does, then, then, then it's perfect. I like that. So let's talk about some of the records that shaped your musical growth. Let's go through five records that really had a huge impact on you. Some people that might know me, this will make them laugh because it'll be predictable mm. but um a record called and the glass handed kites by mew oh that's my favorite yeah that's my favorite band uh, mew is your mew favorite, is band? favorite band that's crazy because mew is my favorite band <laughs> very awesome don't meet yeah. a lot of people who, um, who say that so yeah um how do you feel about plus minus uh, i can't listen to it let's interview you you, you hate I, it I, I do, it does nothing for me it's so weird because oh. i've loved everything they've done and it doesn't do anything for me okay Really? Not even making friends or water slides? It, it just, it, it, like, I put it on and I forget it right after it's done, which is so weird because usually their records, I'm like with headphones on for a week. I don't want to do anything. Like, my, my last girlfriend literally, like, couldn't stand me when, um, the, uh, record before came out because I would just want to sit around and listen to it on headphones all day. Oh, no more stories. It, it just does, this doesn't count as one of my records. I got to my <laughs> okay, other yes. But, but, so we're still on the Glass Santa yes. Kites here. No More Stories is one of my favorite sounding mm -hmm. records. I mean, that, just the the tasteful distortion on that record, and the, just the, I, I hate saying the the drums, because <laughs> I feel like that's like, you know, engineer, producer speak, a lot of people are, you know, talking about the mm -hmm. drums. But, geez, I mean, just how, I don't know, fat and dry they are. And it's just, the, the low end on that record I mean, when I show somebody Mew, I, I put on Introducing Palace Players and try to skip to the part where everything, you know, really comes in. And that crazy guitar riff, it's like, who would who would dare play something <laughs> yeah, like that? It's, it's insane. Oh, yeah. yeah. I know, it breaks my heart <laughs> with him being out of the band. He, he's not in the band? I didn't even yeah, know that. Yeah, he quit. Oh, you're, you, have, you have out Mew fan. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, he sadly quit. But yeah, I you know... Um, they did that record like right down, literally like three blocks from me. And it was like that funny thing of like the next time I saw the studio owner, I was like, all right, I got to look around and like hear what makes this room, this room and everything. Really? Where, where did they do and, that? Uh, is that Electric no, Lady? Well, so they finished it at Electric Lady. Uh, it's a different studio. It's not the same name anymore. And I'm trying to think of what the name was, but back then it was like Brooklyn Recording Company or something. Oh, but yeah, okay. it's uh, over, over here. In, uh, I might be getting my, my New York studios confused. Now. Electric Lady, that's where, that's where Michael Brower is. Is, yeah, right? they mixed it at Electric Lady. That's what it is. So they and then they recorded it elsewhere. But yeah, um, that, I guess Rich Costi does a lot of mixes out of there. So oh yeah, man, Rich Costi, yeah. just uh, lots of respect yeah. there. Okay, so 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 so, but yeah, tell me about in the glass added kites and what it did for you. So we don't bore, bore all non mu fans with our fanboyness. <laughs> that and the glass handed kites is for me just a great picture of an album as a cohesive thought mm -hmm. i mean the songs flow in and out of each other undetectably i mean when I, I remember the first time i listened to that the interlude going into apocalypse mm -hmm. was like 
the drummer speeding up and speeding up and then it's like wow like the way they seamlessly move between songs is has a lot of finesse you know just the the performances on that record uh, particularly the guitar performances actually the word that i use to describe the way the guitar sound on that record is dangerous mm, i like that yeah it it just sounds dangerous to me and it it's awesome and that's another example of how things are perfect and not perfect there there are a lot of little weird things on that record like the that are also beautiful like the intro to the zookeeper's boy i mean the guitars are just yeah that's an intonation tuning nightmare <laughs> like yeah. it's just everything is just coursing and like crazy but when it comes in when that kind of that kind of major glockenspiel sort of riff comes in the and it just totally comes together and then when the when the vocal chorus comes in it's just amazing so yeah i love that record the performances the way the songs flow and then a couple you know really particularly strong songs on that one like like the zookeeper's boy special apocalypse just incredible that's what i love about that one just give me another record this one's going to be a very token artsy answer. Um, Vespertine by Bjork is a big one for me. Um, and I would, that is one that really moves me on an emotional level. Um, Bjork's performances on that record, her vocal delivery, Bjork's vocal delivery in general is just like nobody else. It's, I don't know, her, her vocals are just pure emotion on that record. And, you know, Pagan Poetry being the hit off that record, that, that's an amazing one. So yeah, huge, uh, huge fan of that record. And not necessarily, I, I wouldn't say I'm a, I'm a Bjork fan through and f- through, but that record in particular is um, for for the programming, for the vocals, obviously because it's Bjork is just magical to me. Have you heard that one? I have. I, I'm a big Bjork fan as well. Ah, okay. A, a more recent one that has been a really important musical discovery for me. Actually, Joe from A Lot Like Birds turned me on to this band, Active Child. It's not a band. Um, Pat Pat Grassi, solo artist, um, Active Child. Uh, the record You Are All I See is amazing. I haven't heard anyone use the harp the way that, that Pat does. And, you know, just harps through delay and crazy effects. And um, and the songwriting is is fantastic. You know, it comes down to it, it moves me, the sounds, the the songs, the performances, and there's a particular guest spot on one of the songs called Playing House from a guy named Tom Krell who goes by How to Dress Well. And it's kind of a kind of an R and B influenced tune. And that that's one of the best guest spots. It's probably the best guest spot I've ever heard. I know people would probably say, like, Oh, but you haven't heard this. And maybe not, but that one really, really does it for me. And it's crazy on that song. The, the, the vocals are what really grabbed my attention. Uh, have you heard Active Child before? I, I only know the guest spot he did on the Classics record. So I, I'm familiar, but I've not heard the record. Okay. His new stuff is a little bit different from the old stuff. Similar, but, but different enough. And with, uh, with that first full-length record that he did, I think it's his first full-length. I'll sound stupid if I'm wrong. Oh, well. He... The way the vocals are executed on that record, I mean, he sings in a lot of the time in sort of a operatic kind of falsetto. Not a lot of people do the way he does. And it just sounds so, so cool. And on, a, on the production side of it, the vocal, dub, the vocal layering on it, particularly on that song playing house and particularly on Tom Krell's guest spot is incredibly sloppy. It's like... So much of the time when you're doubling vocals, you want it to be, you know, tight enough. All the vocal tracks are, you know, you know, you can hear consonants flaming and stuff like that. It sounds amazing. <laughs> it's like, how did you do that? Like, that's so sloppy and that sounds just unbelievably good. Hmm. All right. Now, now I'm curious. <laughs> yeah. Check out that song. It, you, I think you got to have a little bit of an R&B streak in you. Right. I definitely do. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Check it out. Um, that, that record has done a lot for me. Uh, what else we got? I have to cite this one. It, I wouldn't say it's a huge influence on me now, but when I was a younger musician, it changed the way I thought about music. And that's the record Visu by Thrice. Mm-hmm. This one, this one seems to be getting cited a lot on this podcast. Really? Yep. Okay. Well, it's not just me then. And I don't know that I would take away any, any particular 
tones or anything from that, but the, but the music to me was so incredible when I heard it. And Thrice is, is um, one of those bands, at least early on, that would, would keep evolving. And I had been a longtime fan already when they put out Visu. And um, they had done kind of, you know, punk influence sort of, uh, with some metal influence kind of rock. And the record they put out before that was a really kind of hard-hitting... Man, there's so many subgenres of rock. It's I've generalized a lot, but it was... Um, like, they had Michael Barbiero engineer the drums, uh, mm-hmm. who also in- engineered the drums on And Justice For All. Yeah. Um, so you can tell what I don't I know, know, I, the band was going I, for, or the I label was going I thought, for. I thought that was the record before that they had... It was. Him. That was Artists in the Ambulance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay, you're right. Yeah. That that was Artists in the Ambulance. But I'm saying that's the one they put out yep. before. Yes. So me being having that concept of Thrice, mm-hmm. and then them moving to Visu, mm-hmm. as a fan, I was forced to grow with them mm-hmm. to that next record. And that really changed the way that I thought about music. And that's really broadened my horizons and took me out of just being kind of a metally punky kind of rock kid to considering, you know, this other world of music. And they would really openly cite their influences. And I checked those out and that introduced me to all kinds of new music once they put that record out. So that was, that was a really big one. I still listen to it um, from from time to time, not not super frequently, but that that record did so much for me. That would kind of bring me into the next record, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, predictable one, Radiohead, "Hail to the Thief," which may not be the record that most people cite. Uh, you know what? That's my favorite one. So you and I are on, on very similar pages. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I, I, I think that that's the one where they started, like where they're like, okay here's everything we do and here's the best, most optimized version of it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that record. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, the song titles can be kind of long and, and, um, difficult to remember two plus two equals five. Um, the lukewarm was, I mean, man, what a way to kick off an album that, that was such a great song. How could I forget? It's called uh, sit down, stand up snakes and ladders. That rec- that that song will still give me chills if I listen to it today. The way that that song is constantly building um, the whole time to that just crazy electronic release that happens at the end, you know, with all the synths and then you know the drums are are playing like kind of a kind of a cool ride beat. That song is is amazing, and that that record for me has kind of been one of the albums that keep keeps on giving. Some records are like that for me, like they, you you keep listening to it and it's it's a true grower. To be honest with you, when I first heard Radiohead, and it was probably well before this record came out, I, I didn't like it at all. I, I, <laughs> I couldn't get into to Tom York's voice. When I really gave this album a fair chance, something just clicked and um, it, like I totally got it. And then I think one by one, I started getting into every song on that record on a deeper level yeah that's that's just a, a great one i like their other their other records as well I, i'm a big fan of um of kid a of course i'm actually not that huge on okay computer I know oh, a lot of wow that, that, that that's one. the first the producer is not huge on okay computer uh, <laughs> yeah yeah i i know a lot of people i mean love love that record and there are songs i like on that record but um i, I just don't like it as much as kid a or as in rainbows those are huge records for me and um yeah oh i feel like i've i've really committed a sin there but, <laughs> it's, I, I, <laughs> i'm not I mean, dogging that's, it that's the that, that's the thing everybody's got their thing everybody's got everybody has one record that everybody loves that they're just not as big a fan of and like uh, it's that it's one of those things it makes you it makes you unique tell me your favorite record of the last year and what inspires you about it all right jesse i'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to disagree with you and say that that plus and minus was I, wow. plus minus. I I did like it, but I I won't say that's of the past year with that condition. It won't be a strong statement because it's not my favorite Mew record. But there are some songs that I really enjoy on that record. Um, Making friends is a big one for me, and I think that's one of Mew's best songs. Period. Hmm. Um, Water slides is also a big one. So yeah, of the past year, plus and minus. Plus minus, I don't think there's any and in there. I think it's just a slash. Mm, yeah, uh, that that's that's a really that's a really good one for me. And you know, I'm sure I'll think of something later and then I'll kick myself. <laughs> Dang it, I should have <laughs> I should have said that one. 
it's all it's all right. I'm, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it another chance for my love of the band and, and on your recommendation since our taste is so similar so yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't say that you know you can it's okay to not like that one mm-hmm. <laughs> for yeah, one new nice. fan to another one I don't think it's as strong no more stories or and the glass-handed kites or you know if you're if you're a huge Fringers fan and mm-hmm. some people are. I like that record. I like um, that record. That, that yeah. was the one that did it for me. The first time I heard that distorted bass at the top of M- MRI, I was like, oh, okay. yeah. Oh, yeah. And just how they go into the diamond ring. But yeah, don't put me yeah. singing on that. <laughs> right there. That, that change, the way that they change things up, and that is not a conventional song structure. Yeah. Is And they make it work brilliantly. Is just fantastic. And, um, and Snow Brigade, fantastic. Yeah. So of the of the last year, there you go. Of the last year, plus minus. So to wrap things up, tell us what you've been working on lately. I just finished tracking with a band called Hearts Like Lions on Tooth and Nail, and I'm excited about that record. Um, I did the EP that they they um, put out before that as well, and they're solid guys and solid musicians. So I'm I'm really excited to to get. I got I got some vocals to comp, you know. You know all that, all this stuff, all the comping, and uh, then the mixing that comes after. So I got my work cut out for me there, but that's that's going to be a, a good one. And um, I'm excited about these mixes that I'm finalizing for a band called Cianvar on uh, Blue Swan Records. And this is a really interesting band because they're kind of a super group, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. It has the it has a guitar player from a band called Dance Gammon Dance mm-hmm. and then it has the bassist well the bassist is a guitarist from a lot like birds and the drummer is the drummer from a band called a lot like birds Donovan the the singer drummer of um Hail the Sun sings on the Cianvar record and then um Sergio the the um guitar player of Stolas plays guitar nice uh, so it's like i mean it's it's just incredible because every one of those guys is just a complete shredder. Mm. <laughs> it's ridiculous um, how good these guys are. So I I mean that was crazy because it's just it's a lot of kind of shreddy s- stuff left and right, but also it's formed into really cohesive songs with you know some good hooks. Um, so I am really excited for people to hear that, and that's you know just about done. Getting ready to send that whole thing off to to mastering. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going.